0: Because we're going to begin with the first chapter of Nehemiah. It's only eleven verses. This will be probably the only time that we read the entire chapter, uh, because after this it gets hairy with names and everything else. So, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekilah, in the in the month of Shizlev, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, I, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived. Those who had escaped the captivity and about Jerusalem, they replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord God of heaven, with great and the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. With those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes and the ordinance that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest sky, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At this time, I was a cupbearer to the king. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for this time to be together uh, with each other. And we pray a blessing on this time, Lord. We pray you be with our teenagers as they come home. Uh, We pray for safety in their travels here And Lord, we pray they had a good weekend of of just being close to one another, of hearing your word preached, of singing songs, of just being together, Lord. And right now, Lord, we pray that you open our minds and our hearts to you, and may your spirit work in us and transform us more into your image. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So I was reading a study that was conducted a few years ago, and it was called this. Left- and right-wing-leaning news organization negative tweets are more likely to be shared. That was the name of the study. It's a fun title, and I think the title says it all. But here's what the study examined. The study examined over 140,000 tweets. Now, can you imagine that job? Can you imagine being the guy who was told, hey, uh, Phil, I need you to read the 140,000 tweets? So 140,000 tweets were examined from 20-plus different news groups on both sides of the political spectrum. Researchers found the majority of tweets sent expressed negative positions and feelings far more often than positive positions and feelings. And just in case you think one side does it more than the other, what was found out is they both do it equally. The negative tweets from the organizations were engaged with more than the positive tweets, and users would engage the organization's feed at a higher frequency with negative tweets. The general conclusion of the study was this. Overall, it appears that for news organizations, negativity is more frequent and more impactful than positivity. All of this kind of creates this doom loop that we can find ourselves within society. Which is, one psychologist wrote, and I like, I like what it said here, social media news fuels anxiety, which then fu- fuels its use. The more anxious about social media news people are, and the more stories of traditional media and political corruption abound, the more people will use social media, and the more anxious they will get. Do you see how it's kind of this doom loop cycle? Like, the more bad news we get, we can't help but read it. And the more bad news we read, we can't help but want to read more bad news. And that's just the thing, right? Bad news is just, uh, it's bad news. I mean, have you ever noticed how fast bad news can take over anything? How fast it can take over your thoughts? How fast it can take over your actions and your mood? Everything can be going great in your day. Your day can be working smoothly until you read about or someone tells you bad news. Bad news just has this way of of living, as I say, rent-free in our head. It just has a way of sticking there. You didn't give it permission to be there, but it's still there. And so the question is, what are you going to do about it? And if social news sources are any tell, here's what they believe that bad news will get them more attention and more clicks because we as humans just can't help ourselves. We just we just can't help ourselves. So then what happens is bad news wins and we live in this doom loop cycle of bad news stories. We can't help it. And we almost come to expect it. We just kind of come to expect bad news. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard, bad news just travels fast. Because we can't help but tell more people about bad news. And that's what I mean when I just say bad news is hard. And so the beginning of our study for the next 13 weeks is the book of Nehemiah. And the very first chapter of Nehemiah begins with bad news. Now, for some of us in here, this may be the first time you've ever read Nehemiah. It may be the first time you actually had to find Nehemiah in your Bible. That's okay. I completely get it. You're not thinking in the Old Testament, hey, I really want to read Nehemiah. No one's ever really thinking that. But, but this may be the first time you've read it. And there might be others of us who have read it. But real quick, here's a, just a very quick two-second kind of thing about Nehemiah. So the book of Nehemiah is actually part of one book, which got broken up into two books. So if you look at Nehemiah before it is the book of Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew text, was one book, Ezra Nehemiah. Now, Christians decided to break it up into two books, because what happened is we moved from scrolls. To so, you know, codecs, which are books, and back then they were really thick and big, and in the first and second century, Christians were like, that's just way too big a book. Let's just break that bad boy up. So that's what we did. We, we broke it up. And what Ezra and Nehemiah tell is the history of Judaism after the fall of the temple in 587 B.C. Now, just a quick other reminder. When we're in the B.C. times, all the numbers go backwards, all right, so I know we're used to, you know, it was 2023, and now it's 2024. Remember, in the, in the B.C. times, we go from 587 all the way down to zero. I, it's confusing. I get it. But so it starts at 587, and what we have is it, be, it, it begins with the book of Ezra, which begins in 538, and Ezra begins with an edict from King Cyrus of Persia. And if you remember this guy named Cyrus, Isaiah tells us about him in 44:28, When he says, this is who Cyrus is. He's my shepherd. And he'll carry out all my purposes. And he'll actually be the one to say, you can rebuild the temple. You can do all of these things. That's Cyrus. And so this is at the end of the Babylonian captivity. It's at the beginning of the people's return from Babylonian captivity back into Jerusalem. And Ezra talks about the rebuilding of the temple, which began about 515 B.C. While all of this was going on and at the beginning of of Ezra's ministry, which is 458, and Ezra's a weird book, the return of Nehemiah that we're reading today to Jerusalem is about 445 B.C. And this is going to be about rebuilding the walls. And it's going to be about Nehemiah going to rebuild the walls, Nehemiah's second return of 430 B.C. And all in all, both Ezra and Nehemiah cover about 100 years of the first Persian Empire. So there you go. There's your history lesson for today. It's up to you to remember all those dates. So our text for today has Nehemiah encountering some bad news from his brother and certain men from Judah. And another quick reminder, we have Israel, right? We think of Israel as one country, right? In, in the Old Testament, it was up until Solomon's death. And then when Solomon died, you have this whole Rehoboam-Jeroboam mess, and they decided to split. So you have a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Northern kingdom, or what? They are the lost tribes of Israel, as we remember. They, they became their own, 722, Assyria took over them. Basically, they became the Samaritans after that. Then you had the southern kingdom, which was Judah. Judah's important, but you had the southern kingdom, which was Judah. This is who we're talking about here. These men from the Judah, from that area, right? Judaites. those. So, Nehemiah's having a conversation. Nehemiah, we find out in verse 11 is what? He's a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. We'll get to that in a minute. He's in a certain citadel called Susa, which was in southwestern Iran, which was the winter residence for Persian kings. Now, a little reference to the bad news that Nehemiah hears and he was receiving from his brothers and sisters. If we read back into Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 and 22, and I'm sorry, but they have to come together at some point. Ezra 4, 7 and 22, there is a story about the king's royal deputy, Rahum and Shimsai, The king's royal deputy and a scribe. And while the people were putting the temple back together and trying to get Israel, you know, rebuilt, these two fools in Ezra 4 decided to write a letter in opposition to the people's attempt to restore Jerusalem. Their opposition was heard by the king, and it was affirmed by the king. And it, in Ezra 4, all construction stopped. Now, we're going to notice in Ezra, but we're going to notice in Nehemiah this theme of opposition. There's this theme of opposition there that goes on. There are those that do not want to see Jerusalem and the people of God be restored. They don't want to see them be restored to power. They don't want to see them restored to the, their historical and original identity. So the bad news in this story is this, that the opposite, opposition is around every corner. There are those that are attempting to, uh, to keep Jerusalem down. There are those who are attempting to suppress any kind of hope, any kind of dreams of a different future than the one that was in front of the Israelites, that was in front of the Judaites, right? Like the hope of rebuilding the temple, the hope of rebuilding Jerusalem kind of hit a wall. So in the opening scene of Nehemiah, it has Nehemiah hearing and receiving this bad news. That the opposition of others is hindering the work and the restoration in Jerusalem as we read in verse 3. It can be once opposition happens for us that we begin to shut down. Have you ever noticed that? If opposition comes against us, if we're not careful, we can just shut down from it. It's what bad news is good at doing to us. It kind of can shut us down from things. And if anybody, know, uh, if anybody knows and understands bad news, it's probably the people of God. When we read the Old Testament, it's kind of chock full of just bad news. I mean, these are the people who have been exiled for 100 plus years. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down for over 140 years. And things are happening in Jerusalem right now, but it's still only half built. It's still not fully how it's supposed to be. They're always taking, have you ever heard this, one step forward and two steps back. They're never quite finished with anything. And like I said, bad news has a way of traveling fast. And now Nehemiah has to do something with this news that he's received from the group. And this is where we see Nehemiah's reaction that bad news is hard. And there's nothing easy about seeing or hearing it. When we encounter, when we have bad news in our life, there's just nothing you can do about it. This is, we, we see this kind of visceral reaction from Nehemiah. And, and some of us, when we receive bad news, some of you might be ones who let your tempers flare. Anybody in here, when you get bad news, you just get mad. You just get mad at everything. You yell, you scream, you kick, you do whatever you have to do. Now, there's others of us in here who might, when you receive bad news, believe that you can just fix the situation. You get bad news and, and your inclination is, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to show this bad news and I'm going to fix this bad news. Whatever your reaction is, whatever we know, whatever we do, bad news has a way of getting us anxious. We're anxious when we get our tempers up and we get mad and we kick things. And we're anxious when we're trying to fix things. There's something about it that does that. And I think there's always this kind of side of anxiousness and fear that goes with bad news. And there's always this fear that the bad news that we receive, that the bad news that we hear will define us, that it will become the definitive description of who we are. It will become our identity. We'll just become Eeyores, right? We all know who Eeyore is. Why? Because he just lives his life in a constant state of bad news. He's always downtrodden. He's always upset. Nothing ever good happens. And the Jews had, in many ways, become the people of bad news. They've lived in a constant state of bad news. Even if good things have happened to them in the recent past, there is still that anxiousness that sits with them about when the next shoe is going to fall. Well, upon Nehemiah hearing the bad news, we see his reaction. It's the only thing he can do. He sits down and he weeps, which tells us it's okay when we have bad news in our life. sit down and weep. It tells us your reaction is your reaction and that's okay because sometimes you just need a good cry. Mourning is a part of life. It's how we deal with things. It's how we deal with the moments of bad news. We can't just get over it and nor do we need someone to try and fix it. For Nehemiah, the bad news is just bad news. It's a bad news of Jerusalem's struggle to be restored and it causes him to mourn. Why? Because these were his people. And so we get this picture that That his heart is their heart. That his mourning is their mourning. And so, Nehemiah mourns the situation. But notice what else he does. And this, I think, tells us about Nehemiah. The bad news of Jerusalem does not have the final word. The bad news of Jerusalem does not have the final word. What is happening in Jerusalem with the opposition will not be the final word as we begin to read. It cannot be for Nehemiah. Bad news is hard, and there is no doubt about it. But it is not the last word. It is not the defining word for the people. And even though when we can't see it, and maybe at this point the people in Jerusalem can't see it, even when we think the bad news is our final word, this is when we need a Nehemiah. This is where Nehemiah stands in that way. Nehemiah. The cupbearer of the king, verse 11. His authority as a cupbearer was what? To make sure the king wouldn't be poisoned. As one Greek historian wrote, uh, it's a well-known fact that the king's cupbearers, when they proffer the cup, draw off some of it with a ladle, pour it into their left hand, swallow it down, so that if there should be poison in it, the cupbearer would not profit. That's a fun job right there. You get to try the wine, and you're going to be the first person that dies. That's the whole part of this, right? That was Nehemiah's place. It was actually quite influential in the royal court. And get this, he's a Hebrew. So you begin to see all this stuff going on. Bad news isn't going to be bad news very long. Not with Nehemiah here. And so Nehemiah decides something. He decides that this word won't be final, that the bad news won't end, that the bad news will actually end with Nehemiah. He's not playing a game of telephone with this bad news. You don't need to be just telling everybody your bad news. Bad news is hard, yes, but it has to end somewhere, and it's going to end with the cupbearer of the king. Bad news is where prayer begins, as we see in verse 5. And for Nehemiah, he takes in the bad news. He takes it to the one. He takes it to the God of heaven. Because in some way, Nehemiah believes in this psalm that you can turn my mourning into dancing. That you can take my sackcloth off and close me with joy. Nehemiah leans into this idea. He leans into the tradition that the God of heaven has the power to turn bad news into good news. Nehemiah doesn't know how it's going to be done. But Nehemiah's faith is evident that only God can bring about the restoration. It's only God who can bring about. Prayer is Nehemiah's first move in receiving the bad news of Jerusalem. And in this prayer, Nehemiah, we see, opens himself up. Get this. It says this, the writer says, that Nehemiah prayed how much? He prayed day and night. His words are a constant prayer to God between the first prayer and as we see in chapter 2, verse 1, the last prayer, which is three months later. Day and night for three months He mourns and he prays. His life becomes the life of the people. His prayer becomes the prayer of the people. We witness Nehemiah's faith in this prayer. (coughs) As one uh, theologian wrote, the impression created by Nehemiah's self-presentation is undoubtedly one of faith that is solicitous, that is serious, and that is above all sincere. Nehemiah's prayer links his family. Did you catch that in the prayer? He links his family with the entire Hebrew nation. His confession before God is the entire confession of the history of Israel. And Nehemiah stands between God and the people, interceding on their behalf, much like Moses, imploring on God's mercy and reminding God of God's promise to the people. Prayer, constant prayer, was needed in this moment. It was the needed in the moment of bad news. Instead of playing a game of telephone and telling others, Nehemiah says it stops here. And the people of God, for all intents and purposes, needed a one. They needed a one. They needed someone who would stand with them in their bad news and give words where they had none. They needed someone to be their prayer before God. They needed one person A one who would stand there with them, mourn with them, pray with them, and be their words. When bad news happens, and it's going to happen, people, we all need someone who's willing to stand with us, stand with us before God. We need one. We do. And in our text today, that is Nehemiah. Get this, a cupbearer to the king. Bad news is hard. It's no doubt it's hard. But get this, bring it to the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews tells us this about a great high priest that we have. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is what? Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrew writer tells us we have a great high priest who understands our weaknesses and who understands our bad news. Who is the one who will stand with us? That Jesus stands in for us with the Father. And the good news is this, that in the midst of bad news, Jesus is our one who stands for us and with us. So my question is this, who needs you to stand in for them today? Who needs you to be Nehemiah for them today? Who needs you to be praying for them day and night, mourning with them and being their words when they don't have words? Who needs you to intercede on their behalf? You might say to me, but Russell, I'm just, uh, you know, fill in the blank. That didn't seem to stop Nehemiah. Armed with the faith that God, the God of heaven, can turn bad news into good news through God's grace and mercy. That didn't stop Nehemiah cupbearer to the king. That didn't stop Nehemiah from standing in the place of his people. From being the one who will say, I will intercede for my people day and night. I will be their words when they have no words and I will be their hope when they feel like they have no hope. If you believe that, then shouldn't we be doing the same for our one? Somebody today needs you to stand with them in the midst of their mess, interceding for them, praying with them, praying for them to say that i don't believe that your bad news the bad news that i'm hearing is the definitive word for you and that can be hard and it can be a messy place but it's a place we're called to and we see in chapter one that nehemiah says i will be that person for our people There's some of us in here who may be going through some bad news times. You just are like, Russ, I can't catch a break. Well, let us stand with you. Let us pray next to you. Let us weep with you. Let us be the place where bad news ends and good news begins. Because, reminder, we're a good news people. We're a good news people, and the good news is this, that Jesus has come, that Jesus is our high priest, and that Jesus is waiting. Jesus is waiting to listen to us and hear us. Anyway, that's Nehemiah 1. We'll get to Nehemiah 2 next week. If you have any needs this morning, if you're thinking about it and saying, I want Jesus to be my one, the waters of baptism are open for you, we're here for you, but come now as we stand as we sing.